Hello and welcome to the HD Lockdown Pod, the show that will help you with your week's work and add a little bit of extra nonsense into your week during the lockdown to keep you going. Hey, I'm Mr. Eichelson, of course, but with me today is Mr. Lawton. Hello, Mr. Lawton. How are things, um, how are things treating you? Hi, everyone. Yeah, welcome to week five, is it now? God, it's flying by, really. Um, so I've been up to a bit of the same old, really. I've read a Paul Ferris's book, um, A Boy on a Shed, his memoirs of his life growing up in Northern Ireland then coming across to England to play professional football and then everything fell apart and then I've just been um, watching Community on uh, Netflix it's been uh, quite good it's a bit old but um, it's made me get into Childish Gambino's back catalogue of music Donald Glover who is in this show otherwise known as Childish Gambino's music's incredible well worth a listen. Um, Mr DeSalvo you're in the house as well how's it going? Yeah, it's going all right. We have now finished decorating the kitchen and we are um, into the music room. Uh, so the piano has been covered so that it doesn't get damaged. And that means I can't do any of my practice for a few days. Um, so, yeah, no progress expected there. But um, started using the gym upstairs and uh, I shall make some banana bread tonight to get up some more calories. Everyone seems to be making banana bread this um, this lockdown. I've I've, I've actually attempted attempted one loaf, as mentioned in a previous episode. Mr. Patterson, uh, how's things going? Yeah, not bad, not bad. I too have been watching Community, a uh, bit of a blast for the past. It's on Netflix, quality. But every week I seem to tell you about a different book I've been reading. Um, and this week it's gone a different way, and I invested in the Xbox Game Pass and have just been um, freeing my inner nerd i suppose or making him even more free there's there's no need to be ashamed of the pattern everyone in a nerd is in there somewhere um any any particular games you've been uh, playing this week uh, well actually tragically i downloaded a game called forza horizon 4 yeah, yeah. because you can drive to edinburgh in that game and i've been tootling around my home city virtually you can drive yeah you can drive to edinburgh and all around the old town and i've been singing the proclaimers while doing it and just tootling about following it, all the rules stopping at red lights just uh. is it just like grand theft auto but in kilts Aye, basically yeah yes yeah, way more violent <laughs> way more violent <laughs> right, okay um so this week on the hd lockdown pod um of course we've got another return to the mysterious country game that mr lawton bestows on us each week um, we're going to talk a little bit more uh, in the history section about Mary Queen of Scots this time, what she gets up to now she's uh, uh, on English soil. Um, Geography Corner, we have the second part of global inequality and governance. And the 92nd challenge this week, uh, we'll see Mr. DeSalvo attempt to talk about Greyfriars Bobby, whatever that may be, uh, for 90 seconds. And uh, Language Liaison. Um, we return there for um, a discussion about the differences between houses in Fran and France and Spain uh, with the United Kingdom. Um, so we shall see what's going on in uh, Mr. DeSalvo's chateau, I believe. As ever, we're going to give a quick uh, call for uh, some more questions and comments from you guys. Continue to spread the word. We've had some lovely feedback so far. Keep that coming. Uh, do get involved. Uh, I know this week, for example, last week, sorry, uh, many of our history students have been using the pod as part of their uh, as part of their learning that may well continue in future weeks so keep an eye out for that um but we've also got a word maybe from mr lawton about the first ever hd lockdown quiz which took place this past sunday 
Yeah, so the first HD lockdown quiz went very well indeed. Um, we had around 20 or so, 15, 20 people get involved. It was quite nice. It went smoothly. And a big shout out for this weekend's coming up, same time, 7 p.m. on Sunday, HD lockdown quiz number two. We're going to have a few different rounds based upon suggestions from people who gone both last week. So see you there, 7 p.m. Sunday evening. I'm sure it'll be a riot, just just like the last one. It was good. It was good fun, though. It really, really was, and uh, it was fantastic to see so many people uh, getting involved and playing along. And we hope to see all of you there next time. Um, so that brings us to the end of part one. We'll return in a few seconds with part two. Okay, welcome back to uh, part two, and it's that time again. It's mysterious country. <laughs> I'm using random data, using varied data. All random facts, don't judge me. You can guess it when it's your time. I, I, I said, ooh, mysterious country. No, I can't stop until you are right. Welcome to the fourth week of Mysterious Country at the moment. We've got the undefeated Mr. Argleston with a hat trick. It's uh, the fifth week of the podcast overall, but the fourth week of Mysterious Country. Uh, so uh, with that in mind, just a reminder of the rules for everybody uh, who's maybe forgotten them. Uh, we're going to have three Mysterious Countries and seven uh, clues from myself. And at the end of each round, at the end of each clue, that is each round. Um, everybody gets to have a go. They say the last name to get my attention. Uh, that squeaking you can hear in the background there is Mr. DeSalvo, who this week has brought along a globe, uh, which is not in a spherical shape. It's a geoid for you geeks out there. <laughs> Serious country number one, clue number one. This country has two time zones. This country has two time zones. Des. DeSalvo. India. Nope. Ah. Oh, this is going to more Russia. Nope. Uh, right. Uh, in this country contains a cartographic phenomenon known as a panhandle, which is a stretch of land that protrudes from the main body of its area. Des. De Salvo. Mexico. No. Ike. Ethiopia. No. Uh, Pat. America. USA. No. No. Um, there's country's currency is the country's name and then it's uh, a franc yeah yeah that's curious um mr DeSalvo is looking longingly at his globe at the minute and it's it's not helping. yes i'll move on to the next one hey, uh, lang- the main languages spoken in this country are french langola and swahili ike senegal I- no pat Patterson. cameroon no I feel like we're. I feel like we're getting warmer. Number five. Uh, this country borders nine other countries and is the second largest on the continent. Oh my word! Where's this? Oh, that's Pat. So... Sorry, Pat. Patterson. So Pat. Algeria is the biggest on the continent. Is that right? The tenth biggest in the world. Maybe. Uh, so second I can, biggest. I can hear that globe squeaking from here. I'm gonna say Nigeria. <laughs> no. So we've got French-speaking country. We've got the second biggest on whichever continent it is. Des. Canada. No. Oh, I thought you had it then. Oh. Now, of course, they, 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 they don't speak Swahili, do they? Of course, it has to be somewhere in Africa. It has to be. It has to be, surely. This country is crucial 
to the production of mobile phones due to its mineral resources. Pat, Congo, it's not got a coast, does it? <laughs> no. Ike, Burkina Faso? No, I have been brutal here. Is that a clue? Or is it like the Democratic <laughs> Republic of Congo? Um, we've got one more round to go. And also, we've you can't, had a you clue. can't guess again. Yeah. Right, and the final clue. Uh, this country has right. less than 2% of its Eichelstum. The Democratic Republic of Congo? It is the Democratic Republic of Congo. <laughs> Unfortunately, for those of you who are keen country officiados, there is it's a Congo a and there is a Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo has a panhandle uh, simply because they need access to the coastline and uh, their colonial rulers negotiated oh. that passageway through. It's, it's really tiny Africa. on the globe. Uh, it's uh, absolutely colossal and it's the home of one of our... Um, <laughs> one of our rainforest it's the second biggest country in africa that that is mind-blowing i just yeah yeah it's phenomenal Uh, the fact that it's bigger than sudan it also tells us a lot about map projections and how they are so distorted mysterious country number two uh this should narrow it down a little bit for you straight away uh the main language is spanish spain no (laughs) it's got a coast uh technically on the atlantic ocean and also on the Pacific Ocean. Yes. Chile. No. Ike. Lancaster. Colombia. No. Pat. Yes. So you said technically. Yeah, it's because technically the coastline's in a gulf, but it's the Atlantic Ooh, Ocean. Ooh, Mexico. Yeah. Uh, no, it's not Mexico. No. There is two capitals technically in this country. This country has two capitals. Yes. The Salvador. Honduras. Correct, De Salvo wins. Uh, one one. Uh, Eichelstum uh, won. Uh, De Salvo won. Patterson, yeah, I, I feel no. like I cheated for mine not a little bit, or at least I bent the rules slightly. Yeah, yes, yeah. Mysterious country number three. Number one, the largest export to this country is oil. Ike. Saudi Arabia. No. Des. De Salvo. Russia. No. Pat. Yes. The USA. No. Um, this country has territory in Antarctica. It is one of the nations that has territory in Antarctica. Like Jordan? No. Very unlikely. Pat, <laughs> Norway. Patterson wins. No! Well done, Patterson. Fantastic. The other clues that we're going to come through there is that it's uh, the world's largest tunnel is found there, which is 15 miles long. It's got a border with Russia at one small point. It's introduced salmon to the Japanese sushi menu. All income records in Norway are available in the public domain. So all of our wages, all of the tax we pay would be available for the public to see. So anybody in Norway, your records are available. No way. No way, indeed. Uh, and skiing was invented there. Anyway, so well done. We've now got the tiebreaker question. That's set up. We've gone to a 1-1-1 one, one, one draw again. And um, so, for example, I would say that the population in Northern Ireland was 1.1 million. I wouldn't expect uh, like you to say 1.15 million or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, what is the population of Norway? 
what is the population of Norway? The closest I, wins. I will go with 9.8 million. 9.8 million. That's too small. Oh, see, I was going to go smaller. I mean, Every time you say something that puts me off. Uh, 72 degrees. 72 um, degrees. <laughs> uh, I think... I'm, I'm going to... 7.2. I'm going to go with... 10. The winner this week. And the new champion of Mysterious Country is Mr. Patterson. Well done. The population of Norway being 5.3 million. Is it really? There can only be so many Oligon Associates in the world. Exactly. Uh, Thank you very much, guys. Mr. Arkless and commiserations for losing this week. And well done, Mr. Patterson, our new Mysterious Country champion. Could I ask a question? Yeah, of course, yeah. How did Norway manage to get some land in, was it Antarctica? Yeah, so the Antarctic Treaty divided up um, Antarctica amongst 17 different nations. Well, that brings us to an end of another fascinating, thrilling, enthralling and controversial, I would say, game of Mysterious Country. Mysterious Country no, I can't stop until you are right. Okay, that brings us to the end of part two. We'll return in just a few seconds with part three. Okay, welcome back to part three of the HD Lockdown Pod. So we return for some history now, and this is still centred and focused around uh, the work that year 10 historians have been doing for their GCSE work. Last week, we started uh, talking to Mr. Patterson about Mary, Queen of Scots and her early life in France and in Scotland. And we're going to continue that story today. But if we could briefly, could we get a tiny little update or a reminder, sorry, um, on what uh, you told us last week about Mary, Queen of Scots? Yeah, so um, Mary, Queen of Scots kind of grows up in France, comes to Scotland and is just sort of very different to anything Scotland's used to. Um, She is Catholic. She is um, incredibly confident. She's a female ruler. She's very sort of glamorous. And if we remember, married three times, all fairly unhappy, apart from maybe the first one, which was happy, but short. And then we kind of left off uh, her, the Scottish noblemen have kind of risen up, have overthrown her after the murder of her second husband. Um, And uh, she has been able to break out of prison and sort of rush to the nearest kingdom for help. And that kingdom just happens to be England. Yeah, so Mary Queen of Scots in in the year of 1568 finds herself at the mercy of Queen Elizabeth I. Now, it's a strange situation that she finds herself in. She is, you know, in essence, well, she was until very recently, um, a reigning queen of, of, of a foreign country. And now she finds herself in England when Elizabeth has to decide what it is she wants to do with it. Now, Mary wants help. Mary wants help getting back her throne in Scotland, seizing it from the Protestants who have essentially installed her son. But Elizabeth is very wary, incredibly wary. And Elizabeth was always the the kind of the master politician. But she finds herself in a difficult position because Mary is a threat. Mary is a threat because Mary is essentially next in line to the throne of England, or at least she is the most viable, um, the closest living relative, I suppose, of Elizabeth. So initially she's placed under house arrest because it's almost like Elizabeth is deferring like the decision. She doesn't quite know what to do. 
She doesn't feel like she's got enough almost evidence to do anything particularly sinister to her. Um, so she puts her under house arrest, usually kept in the Midlands, I think in Derbyshire quite a lot of the time, because she's quite far from the coast. She's far from potentially rescue. Um, and, she's, and it's difficult if she escapes, you know, how is she going to get anywhere? Why is she a threat to Elizabeth, though, when she arrives? The reason being is because there's still quite a significant Catholic population in England at the time. A lot of people who are not particularly happy with Elizabeth's religious settlement, what we talked about in the first episode of the pod uh, five weeks ago. There's a bit of disgruntlement, essentially. But so uh, Mary is maybe a symbol, a potential uh, replacement for Elizabeth for those disgruntled Catholics. In 1569, only a year after Mary's arrival, the Northern Rebellion erupts, which is centred around... Um, an attempt by the Duke of Norfolk, one of the most prominent noblemen in the kingdom in, in England, uh, a Catholic, in his attempt to potentially marry Mary. Now, this is something that Mary has no direct involvement in, but Elizabeth, of course, then, you know, she becomes this symbol, this threat, potentially. So the rebellion arises. In 1570, the Pope uh, in Rome issues his papal bull, essentially encouraging all Catholics in England to refuse to follow the rules um, that Elizabeth lays down. And again, if you're not going to follow the rules of the Queen, therefore you need to follow the rules of a different Queen, potentially Mary Queen of Scots, who could easily become Mary II of England uh, if she had her way and if, if the Pope had his way. In 1571, another plot arises uh, with the Rodolphi plot, which is an attempted Dutch invasion. Rescue Mary Queen of Scots, get her out of this house arrest and install her on the throne and get rid of Elizabeth. And all of this increases the threat of Mary. While she remains alive, she maintains a threat, she poses a threat to Elizabeth's security, her personal safety, her continued existence is a problem for Elizabeth. She is seen as the valid Catholic successor to Elizabeth. There are many people who have always, since Elizabeth took the throne back in 1558, say that she was illegitimate. She never should have been there because her mother should never have essentially been allowed to marry Henry VIII. Her birth itself was wrong, invalid, Elizabeth is a essentially invalid queen. So the question is, of course, why doesn't Elizabeth dispose of Mary sooner? Why doesn't she have her bumped off? She's clearly a threat. She's clearly someone who is a problem for her. Mary arrives in 1568, but Mary spends the next 10, 15, I think it's 19 years in total, essentially, in England, posing this potential threat. But Elizabeth feels like she doesn't have the right or the the ability to take someone who is not an English subject, someone who was until very recently a sovereign of a foreign land, put her under trial to, to do anything to her, because essentially, has Mary done anything wrong? Has she got any, any evidence against her that she is guilty of some sort of crime? Now, Mary, whilst these plots have been going on, the Rodolphi plot of 1571, the Northern Rebellion of 1569, later the Throckmorton plot of 1583, there's no direct involvement of Mary. Mary doesn't appear to actually have her fingers on the trigger, suppose there's no actual evidence that ties it to Mary. But Elizabeth has this problem as well, is that she can see from France and from Spain, the two wealthiest, most powerful countries in Europe, if not the world at this time, there is a real threat. If she bumps off Mary in the middle of the night, if she disposes of her, then she is going to create enemies abroad. In 1572, there is the St. Bartholomew's Day massacre in Paris, where thousands of Protestants are murdered in this kind of bloodthirsty um, act by the Catholics in the city, the Catholic kind of the rulers in the city. There is the ongoing Spanish Inquisition where people are being arrested and put on trial and executed for their religious beliefs. Elizabeth knows there is a huge fervour, religious fervour in Europe. If she is seen to have the blood on her hands of maybe killing 
a, a potentially rightful Queen of England and Scotland, Mary Queen of Scots, then Elizabeth might not be long for this world. She, might she trigger a Catholic insurrection? Might, might she trigger a Catholic invasion? But things change because her people around her, the Puritans, the likes of William Cecil, the likes of Francis Walsingham, are whispering in her ear. They want to see something done about this because they know that as long as Mary remains alive, Elizabeth will be under threat. They know that they can't bump her off. So they manufacture something potentially. And this is where history is kind of quite questionable. The interpretations differ. Essentially, we don't know the full definite extent of exactly what happened here. But what we do know is that Mary was implicated in a plot where Mary had direct involvement. And this is the Babington plot around uh, 1585, 1586, which was cooked up, some people believe, by Francis Walsingham because they needed evidence of collusion. They needed evidence that Mary essentially was the one who was plotting to escape her confinement and to overthrow her cousin, Elizabeth. Walsingham was like your modern day, almost, uh, your, sorry, your 16th century James Bond figure in America. He was Elizabeth's secret agent. He was someone who had people working for him, double agents, uh, pretending to be Catholics, providing him with information on what Mary was doing, what she was saying, what she was up to. And he infiltrated, he managed to get someone by the name of Gilbert Gifford to infiltrate the Babington plot, which was when Anthony Babington, a noted uh, Catholic kind of gentleman, uh, was trying to uh, get Mary to escape and to kill Elizabeth and to encourage a Spanish invasion. And he infiltrated this plot and he managed to get letters sent to Mary, coded letters that Mary returned uh, using uh, beer barrels. Now she thought she was being incredibly clever. They thought the whole thing was secret that nobody knew, but Walsingham knew all along. He was seeing everything that Mary was doing because that gave him the evidence to take to the Queen, take to Elizabeth and say, look, Mary is up to no good. Famously in one of the letters, some people dispute it and maybe say that Mary never wrote them. Maybe they were just made up entirely to get her, get her into trouble. But the, the last letter that she said was, let the great plot commence. She was the one who said, let's do it. Let's kill the queen. Let's get out of here. Let's take the throne. So whether you believe that this was all cooked up by Walsingham or whether you think that uh, Mary was the, uh, the, the traitor, the person who was conniving to try and take the throne of England, possibly is neither here nor there because the ultimate outcome of this was that Mary was banged to rights. She was in serious bother. And actually something I found whilst I was researching this, while I was looking into it uh, in preparation for the pod, was something I hadn't been aware of before, something called the bond of association that went back all the way to 1564. This idea that you could be guilty by association. If someone was plotting on your behalf against the Queen, so if someone was plotting on behalf of Mary, Queen of Scots, against Queen Elizabeth, then technically speaking, Mary would be seen as guilty, even if she hadn't done anything at all. And this is actually something that was agreed by Mary back in 1564, when she was still Queen of, Queen of Scotland. She'd put her name to this bond of association that was put together by the English kind of privy councillors and, and parliament and so on. So it's, this possibly suggests that, you know, there, there is legal right, I suppose, behind Elizabeth's decision to eventually put her on trial. So she was put on trial in October 1586 for treason. Now the question of course is, can she be a traitor if she is Scottish? Uh, can she be a traitor if she is a foreign queen? There's an argument to maybe suggest not. She'd never uh, sworn allegiance to Elizabeth. Well, this bond of association may argue potentially against that idea, but of course Mary had no chance. The whole thing was a show trial. Mary was always gonna find herself in, serious, uh, in a serious position. Once she found herself on trial, it was a foregone conclusion. 
she was found guilty, but for her to be executed, Elizabeth needed to give her affirmation. She needed to sign the death warrant. She waited for two months. Some historians wonder why that she waited so long to put her ink to the actual death warrant itself. Was she concerned about the consequences? Was she still concerned even though she'd gone through a proper trial, even though there was real evidence in inverted commas? Did she have enough to be able to say that she had the right to kill a queen? It was signed eventually on February the 1st after quite a bit of pressure from her advisors, but she gave it to a privy councillor unsealed, didn't have the royal seal on it, and told him to hold on to it for now. She wasn't ready to send it up to Fotheringay Castle where Mary was being held captive. But actually this privy councillor passed it to William Cecil, um, Elizabeth's chief advisor, and it was taken straight to Fotheringay. And Mary was executed on February the 8th. Now, some people wonder, did Elizabeth not give her seal because she, she could have almost a like plausible deniability? She could say, well, actually, in the end, I never gave the rubber stamp. I never said it was definitely something I wanted to do. So she could always say to the Spanish and the French, well, these were my ministers. They were acting beyond their remit. In fact, her own um, privy councillor, the guy who passed on the unsealed message, was sent to the Tower of London for essentially passing on something that she had signed. So Elizabeth found herself in this strange position where, yes, of course, the blood was on her hands. Yes, of course, she had ordered the execution, but she could maybe, you know, move away slightly from it. This execution sent shockwaves around Europe. You don't see queens ordering the execution of other queens very often. Only a year later, the Spanish attempted an invasion as part of the Spanish Armada, which we'll be looking at actually in the next couple of weeks within your GCSE history work. But in death, did Mary, this tragic figure, this person who had been a queen in France, a queen in Scotland, a person who'd been under house arrest for the best part of 20 years in a country that she could have one day have been queen of, in death, she may have had that final victory because it was her son, James, who would go on eventually to succeed Elizabeth. Because Elizabeth had, did not have the things that Mary did, which were a husband and ultimately children. And it was Mary's child that would go on to join the crowns, essentially, ultimately. Uh, in a sense, the union of the crowns of, of Scotland and England in 1603. One wee thing to maybe add, um, as she was as scandalous in life as she was in death. Um, so at her execution, you're meant to show up and sort of be all uh, remorseful and wear black and everything like that. Not Mary, she rocks up in this sort of crimson red dress and everyone's just shocked and she kind of swaggers and tips the executioner, the guy that's going to cut her head off who apparently was super freaked out at how relaxed she was and it kind of unnerved him. He cuts her head off, lifts her up by the hair to show the head to the court, forgetting that she was completely bald and had a wig on. The head falls out of the wig and rolls down the aisle, much to the horror of everyone watching. Her last words apparently were, remember me as a French woman, as a Scottish woman and as a Catholic. She was strong-willed and defiant to the end and I think you know because she never recognized the authority of Elizabeth or that court to try her and that in her eyes she had never done anything wrong and she accused you know Walsingham and co of completely and utterly uh, colluding against her and that the whole thing was a sham anyway we'll never know probably how much there is behind that stuff and you know probably you would lie your head off if you're in that situation because you're trying to save yourself perhaps um, but Mary Queen of Scots, yeah, uh, an absolute, an absolute star. So that brings uh, Mary Queen of Scots to a close uh, for now, and uh, we're going to be back in just a second with another ninety-second challenge. How long do we have? How long do we have? Ninety. Ninety. How long do we need? How long do we need? Ninety. Ninety. 
How long do we have? How long do we have? 90 seconds. 90 seconds. What a challenge. What a challenge. So it's that part of the show. It's the 90 second challenge where one of our teachers is uh, forced uh, to uh, talk for 90 whole seconds about any topic uh, that they have chosen for them. Now, um, Mr. Patterson, without giving anything away, really, could you remind us what you uh, said the, the Salvo had to talk about today? So the challenge I set was to tell us about Greyfriars Bobby, a very famous story. Uh, that I grew up with. All right, so Mr. Desaba, before you start, how are you feeling? Yeah, um, I really liked the challenge. I must say I looked at some very reliable sources, I mean, not Wikipedia, of course, um, to find out you know, the truth behind this challenge anyway. So, Mr. DeSalvo, you have 90 seconds to talk about Greyfriars Bobby and explain it to us all. Ready, set, go. Okay, so uh, Greyfriars Bobby is a Sky Terrier who um, was basically around in the 19th century Edinburgh. I can see why Mr. Patterson was very close to this story. Um, this dog became famous because he's allegedly uh, the one who spent 14 years guarding the grave of his owner um, until he himself died, poor dog actually, in 1872 of cancer of the jaw. Um, the story um, that is most plausible is that uh, Greyfriars Bobby belonged to John Gray, who was an Edinburgh City Police and works as a night watch. Um, and when he died, um, John Gray was buried in the Greyfriars Kirkyard. Um, and the dog actually spent pretty much every day of the rest of his life guarding, you know, um, the grave of his owner. Um, and in 1867, uh, Sir William Chambers, who was the director of the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, paid for Bobby's license and gave the dog a collar, um, so he's, uh, which is now by the way in the Museum of Edinburgh. And um, yeah, so acknowledged the status of this dog. Uh, and now there is also a commemorative statue made a year later, uh, well, after his death anyway, to, you know, celebrate the greatness of this very faithful dog. Oh, perfect, 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 perfect. Uh, so, right, so we had uh, 90 seconds of uh, dog conversation there. Um, Mr. Patterson, I mean, it, you're the guy with the expert um, knowledge on, on Greyfriars Bobby, I'm assuming. What did you make of it? Yeah, very impressed, Mr. DeSalvo. All, all, all the details in it. If anyone is going to Edinburgh, you can see there's a wee statue of Greyfriars Bobby. I should say, no one go anywhere near it at the moment, guys. Stay in your home. <laughs> well, yeah, once this is all over and we all flood to Edinburgh, I'll be there. Yeah, you can go see his statue and um, for the tourists, it's good luck to rub his nose. So the nose of the statue is all kind of golden. But for Edinburgh people, you can go to the dog's got his own graveyard in Greyfriars Kirk. Um, and Edinburgh people leave sticks on the grave for the dog to chase in the heaven so you can go see oh. the graveyard. The graveyard's actually where um, J.K. Rowling, well not in the graveyard, but J.K. Rowling wrote a lot of the Harry Potter books in Edinburgh and apparently you can see some of the characters' names on gravestones in Greyfriars Kirk as well, so well worth a visit. But very impressed, Mr. DeSalvo. Thank you. Excellent stuff, yeah. Um, Mr. DeSalvo, so I, I believe 
it is now that time where you have got to set a, a new 90 second challenge for the only remaining teacher to take this particular challenge. It's yourself. It's myself. <laughs> so I'm, I, I'm now asking you to bestow on me something vaguely linked to... French. Yeah. Actually, yes. Um, I would like you to research into the Mrs. Or actually, I should say Dr. Mrs. Van der Tram verbs and why students of French, you know, have to know about these particular verbs um, when they look into the past tense. So I will obviously send you details, but yeah, it's Dr. Mrs. Van der Tramp. My jaw is on the floor. Uh, I have, I, mean, I, was, I was actually afraid that you were going to say I had to talk in French for 90 seconds, which would have been an interesting challenge. I will do my very best to try and, and to, to meet the challenge you've set me. I'm um, sure you will. A great job with Greyfriars, Bobby. I'll only, my only hope is that I can meet those levels of uh, quality uh, next week. Uh, okay, Excellent. that brings us to the end of another 90-second challenge. How long do we have? How long do we have? 90. How long do we need? How long do we need? 90. How long do we have? How long do we have? 90 seconds. 90 seconds. What a chalice. What a We're at the end of part three now. We're back in a few seconds with part four. Okay, welcome back to part four. It's Geography Corner. It's uh, Mr. Lawton. Take it away, sir. Welcome back, everybody, yeah, to uh, Geography Corner. Uh, this week, we're following on from last week's introduction to global inequality and governance. Um, just giving you the background and the uh, key players this week we're going to focus on um, global inequality on that scale and then we're going to zoom in on the UK next week um, and when we're thinking about global inequality in this sense I'm tackling it very much from an economic standpoint um, not so much on social and environmental the three pillars of sustainability as geographers all know but um, they are always intermixed and we'll go across them. Uh, world facts on inequality uh, the world's wealthiest 1%, and remember, we were looking at inequality in terms of uh, economic measurement, actually hold twice as much wealth as around 6.9 billion people on the planet. So that's the world's wealthiest 1% hold twice as much wealth as a combined 6.9 billion people. Um, if any of you want to go and do some further research, do have a watch and start with uh, Netflix's uh, Billionaires Explained episode. It's very good indeed. Now, what is really strange is um, there's over 10,000 people die every day as a result of um, inaffordable healthcare or a lack of affordable healthcare, uh, which at the moment is probably being exacerbated by um, the COVID-19 outbreak. Um, this number is still true when you look into countries like the United States of America with their um, health system in place. Also, uh, every one in five children uh, will not be allowed to go to school for financial reasons or for other reasons at the same time. So one in five. And if we start to actually break that down by gender, uh, for every 100 boys, it's uh, 121 girls, so 20% more uh, chance of girls not going to school. And uh, Last uh, but not least, in terms of global inequality, when we think about money, um, in terms of care work undertaken by women in society, and we can see where the inequality starts to lie in terms of gender bias, um, there's unpaid work of $10.8 trillion 
every year that occurs on this planet. So we think about the uh, sort of money that's paid out there for lots of things um, that we don't really need and care is something we will all need probably at some stage in our life. Yet 10.8 trillion is a it's not paid to women in society. So those are the sorts of startling facts that we have to look at. And I think those numbers are mind boggling and they're very hard to kind of appreciate. It's like looking at the values and the sorts of numbers that a sensational footballer like Lionel Messi or in a really exceptional dancer of a different period, you know what's really good in your own context and you can see your relationship to somebody in your class or on your football field. But you then think, oh, they're amazing, but then they wouldn't even get anywhere close to them. So seeing these numbers is quite difficult to comprehend, I feel. So let's have a look at some more real world examples. And we'll talk about people and not so much such big numbers. And the first example I'm going to give you from the planet is going to be to a gentleman called uh, Thomas Sankara. Now, Thomas Sankara uh, was around in the 1980s and he was the leader of a, clinical, uh, leader of a country called the Burkina Faso. And um, he's a very good looking man. He's got some inspirational speeches online on YouTube. And um, he, at the time, wanted to stand up to inequality in the world. And he was going to take on something that many of us know through different means, such as the Live Aid concerts, as such as the, the famine outbreaks in Ethiopia. But what was coined, and I hate this expression, the third world debt crisis. Um, he was going to stand up to this for the African countries that were being overwhelmed by this um, inability to pay back money that they owed other countries. So I had spoken previously about the Washington Consensus, the World Bank, the IMF, who were around at this time. And they were they given out money to hopefully aid development, to make these people stronger, to make them more equal to the rest of the world. And what actually happened in the USA was a series of events in their uh, worker, uh, working economy that meant that interest rates rose to almost 20%. Uh, and that meant that the African countries who then had to pay back uh, loans with these interest rates and the global system of the world being intertwined, uh, entwined together uh, meant that um, they couldn't afford to do this anymore. So they were going to default. Um, they were going to not pay back this money. Uh, and Thomas Sankara stood up and he went in front of the African Union, which is the equivalent of the European Union, and said to the people there in a really memorable speech that if we pay back this money, uh, lots of people will die. But if we don't pay back this money, no one will die. On the on the principle that if you were to pay back this money, they wouldn't be able to invest in healthcare, they wouldn't be able to invest in education, and people would suffer as a result, and people would die. Yet, um, if they did, didn't pay back that money, all that would happen is that the banks of America, Wall Street, would not get their money, and that's it. At the end of the day, we're talking about astronomical sums that are only in digital format. Um, there isn't actually a pile of money that they were going to send across. It's all fictitious in the way it's a human construct. Um, now, Wall Street don't like this. America doesn't like it. And they get on the backs of the Washington consensus and say, what can we do? And um, they came up with this um, strategy called a or this offering, um, this way to try and make things equal to the people called the uh, structural adjustment programs. Now, these were offered out um, to the African countries. They weren't offered out to Thomas Sankara because before these things had even been devised and after his rousing speech, which seemed to get most African countries on board, he was actually um, 
murdered. He was assassinated in a French back coup. Um, so one of uh, the big players in the world actually got rid of him um, out of the way, out of the picture, and they were able to put in a different leader who was uh, far more willing to negotiate with the Western principles in the Washington consensus. Could I ask the question about how, how cynical you are personally about that particular incident of the assassination of that uh, the, the president of Burkina Faso? Thomas Sankara was assassinated and um, it sounds really heartbreaking that somebody was willing to stand up for the freedoms of their own country. Um, I'm sure Mr. Patterson can relate to that. And then they get butchered for those um, opinions is something that seems very unfair and unjust. Um, Thomas Sankara is one of many leaders around the world who goes against the grain and just gets alienated or shot down. It depends who your friends are in society. Our friends of North Korea have only got powerful friends in China and Russia um, who help them to stay in place. If they weren't there and they didn't have their big friends, I'm sure something would have happened to the leaders there. And it happens in many contexts. We look at the issues in Iraq. Uh, we look at the issues in Libya. Um, it's happened again and again. And it's a time when we've lived in the most peaceful era of the world we've lived in it in the West. Um, it's not been the case elsewhere. Uh, and Thomas Sankara is just one of endless examples. So these structural adjustment programs, uh, what were they set up to do? Well, they were neoliberalists. So neo meaning neoliberal meaning free. They are neoliberalist economic ideas. They come in there with the idea that we'll give you more aid, we'll be able to give you more money, we'll give you a new loan if you want, a new revenue stream for your country to develop and um, become more equal like us, uh, like the, the West. Uh, but you've got to open up your markets. You can't protect it at all. You can't protect your agricultural industry from cheap imports. Um, you've got to remove some of your workers' rights. You've got to get rid of national and state-owned industries. Um, you've got to not pass through the environmental laws that make things more expensive to produce. Um, you've got to be willing to do this to accept our loans. And because these countries were debt-ridden, because they had no alternative, if you wanted to go for the alternative, which is not pay the money, your government was going to get overthrown. So you bowed down to it, and many of the African countries did bow down to the structural adjustment programs at the time. And what they did through that form of governance, through that form of management from our big stakeholders of the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, they helped to put in place the structures of inequality that still last today. So when people think and they wrongly assume that there are issues to do with climate and physical geography that explain why Africa maybe lags behind in terms of equality with the West and economic prosperity and social development, this is not true at all. The mechanisms and the structures that are put in place inside the global systems help to facilitate the unequal flows of capital, labour, resources um, from actually ever being able to arrive. Um, and Africa is the one that we can always go to in terms of looking at inequality. But the USA only in 2017 agreed similar deals with Peru um, and their beef markets in particular. Um, Peru actually had quite a high standard in terms of food hygiene, its regulations. Um, the USA wouldn't negotiate with them. And along with the way World Trade Organization and the International Monetary Fund, they came to a new agreement which saw the actual eradication of the environmental standards on the beef there in 
you may guys out there remember the issue with chlorinated chicken coming in from the USA uh, now that we are leaving the European Union because when we leave the European Union the food standards and the environmental standards that they uphold we will no longer have to do and that means that America can exploit, can exploit that there. Um, this erosion is something that is not only just down to the USA and I don't want to make them out to be the bad guys but you've got to realise that the powerful countries do it either way and I'm going to turn the attention towards before we move on next week to looking at the UK and um, the Perugia Dam scandal in um, 1994 when the UK um, wanted to help out a country called Malaysia um, for those of you who know the effort Malaysia is truly Asia it's in Asia and um, in 1994 they wanted to uh, build a dam uh, they wanted it for its hydroelectric potential, they wanted it to be more sustainable, they wanted to help provide more electricity to the population, and they were given £238 million worth of aid, but this was a bilateral agreement, by bi meaning two, like bicycle, so you've got a situation where the UK expected something back, and actually what it was is after the fall of um, the uh, Cold War, and arms uh, sales were kind of dwindling a little bit. Um, the Thatcher government at the time and the preceding governments afterwards and the major uh, helped to negotiate uh, weapons deals and they made sure that Malaysia was buying weapons from the UK to actually almost double the amount of money that they we sent in aid. So last week we talked about for the one dollar that goes to the global poor, yeah, $24 comes the other way. Um, well, that's great. So we got 500 million. That's one to two. How does that work? Well, the $238 million that we sent in aid, almost 80% of that was spent on British companies and UK consultants going to Malaysia and actually sorting out their problems. So of the 238 million that we tied into Malaysia, um, actually almost all of that came back to the UK and our companies instead. And that money that went out there meant that the taxes never came back into the economy. So the inequality starts to even percolate then back into uh, the UK as the taxes don't go back into the system to feed into everything else. So that sets us up uh, for looking at inequality in the UK. Uh, next week, if you want to look about more global inequality, uh, I highly recommend looking at uh, Inequality in the 1% by Danny Dowling. Um, it's got several editions now, but it's truly mind-blowing, uh, the inequality on a global scale. And we'll have a look at it more so in the UK next week. Thank you, Mr. Lawton. I mean, some of the stats you kind of read out at the start, they, they do kind of beg, beg a belief. You can't quite get your head around them. They're those kind of huge, colossal numbers. You've got to remember, these numbers are the worst numbers that the planet's ever seen no matter what, what way you try and paint a picture. As population increases, it, those numbers become more and more stark. And in that particular, the one you said about, the one that I found most surprising was the, the 10 point whatever trillion uh, of unpaid work that people just don't get paid for stuff. Um, yeah, and um, I think this is typified by recently um, a, a big CEO of one of the companies during the COVID pandemic, um, uh, just said um, because of all the extra weight that people are having to do in our delivery services uh, we're now going to give people uh, an hour to go and not do work during the day and to go and do this in the middle of their working day uh, and then somebody just commented back well done for inventing the lunch break um, uh, this, this this sort of thing is an erosion and uh, 
goes towards inequality because the people who own that company are the ones that aren't missing out there and that self-care in the end will lead to more care that's needed that then isn't paid for when they those people go home and they're tired and people have to look after them and when they're older and they've really been worked to the bone they're mm. going to have more unpaid work it all links in together so that brings us to the end of uh, part four we'll be back in a few seconds with language liaison Welcome back to part five. It is uh, language liaison. Uh, I will master that uh, somewhat continental accent at some point. Mr. DeSalvo, what have you got in store for us this week? Um, hello um, again. So um, our students in year 10 have started looking at where, um, well, basically accommodation, describing the house, the home, the, the local area, regional sort of issues as well as the neighbourhood. And I thought... Um, to keep a bit culturally related anyway, I wanted to talk about the differences between houses actually, you know, with, well, in Spain or France and the houses in the UK, because um, for those people who might not have travelled abroad, um, there are actually some significant differences and obviously it all revolves around people's lifestyle, but also the weather. Um, so I think the most um, significant difference especially as you land to either France or Spain is the amount of apartments or flats that actually you can see from um, well from the plane and uh, I remember actually when my brother flew to the UK for the first time he was fascinated by the rows of houses and the greenery that you know was quite characteristic um, and I think whilst you know we probably in the UK think of flats as the cheaper option um, if you live in a flat I'm, I'm going to generalize quite a lot probably today but you know um, I think the idea of, of living in a flat is not as glamorous as the idea of living in a house perhaps in the UK please correct me if I'm wrong there um, and obviously as you enter a British you know or kind of traditional tip, uh, British house um, I think you can see uh, notice some features that really aren't quite um, noticeable in a French or a Spanish household um, although again there it depends where that is located I think one of the uh, major differences are actually the windows in um, the UK most of the windows will open you know vertically whereas um, you know a lot of house houses essentially flats um, in France or Spain will have you know the windows opening horizontally like two sides of the doors if that makes sense um, and that's to do with the weather you know the windows in the UK tend to be bigger and um, to allow as much sunshine as possible whereas in a country like Spain for example they don't tend to be as big to protect from the heat actually um, and at the same time you notice those shutters that people find very attractive very you know uh, characteristics um, in mainland Europe and um, they're not a feature in the UK again probably for the lack of um, you know problems with sunshine so to speak um, and you know whereas the you know the shutters are replaced by those curtains um, and another thing is there's no grills ever um, whereas in you know in France in Spain you get um, flats or certainly uh, you know ground floors um, kind of made a bit more secure by the presence of those grills. Uh, I was just being silly and was going to ask about uh, there was no grills but I was just thinking about ovens but it, it, it's... Oh sorry 
Um, yeah, so those metal bars outside. Um, um, I think we all know about the plugs and switches, they're different in mainland Europe. And I think one of the things that um, throws people um, is the separate taps and um, that still survives in the UK. Um, I personally find it a, you know, one of my pet hates. I'm quite glad to um, have mixed um, mixers um, in my taps, but um, um, yeah, certainly not a feature in um, Spain, a bit less in France. Another thing that is different in France and in Spain is that the front part of the house, if you live in a house and you've got, you know, the equivalent of a British, sorry, of a front garden. I mean, the front uh, part is most often paved. So people don't have this, you know, lawnmower, you know, kind of chore um, during the week. They quite like to have a practicality. Um, and so low maintenance and something that you will not see in France or Spain most of the time is also um, a conservatory. Again, you know, it all comes to... Um, to do with the weather and the fact that, you know, um, I suppose there's no such a need of building um, a conservatory. I suppose in the UK we are a bit more considerate about safety of raw, you know, fire alarms are compulsory, they're not um, in France, they're not in Spain. Bin collections as well, they're very different in the UK. You find a lot of, you know, households having their own, you know, individual bins, um, whereas you know, especially if you live in apartments or flats um, in mainland Europe, you find that uh, collect, uh, bins are collected um, a couple of times a week and everybody goes to put their rubbish um, in these common sort of communal containers. So those are kind of main differences. And um, one other thing that I want to uh, talk about is that um, um, in France or in Spain, when you buy a new house, you don't have it with a kitchen so um you actually have to buy your own kitchen and everything has to be put together and uh, whereas if you buy an apartment here uh, my understanding anyway is that it comes with you know a kitchen already so whoever's built and designed those apartments will have put a kitchen there too um so if you buy an apartment um in spain or in france you don't you will actually just go and choose your own kitchen which would be different from obviously your neighbors um unless they've chosen the same ones in France, especially, you get kitchens that are really quite small, um, both in apartments and um, especially, you know, in a city like Paris or quite, you know, big cities. And the kitchen really is a basic, you know, gas cooker a lot of the time and just very little um, storage space. And um, a lot of the time, people who move house will take with them, you know, their own fridge and, you know, like the washing machine and other appliances. Another thing that I wanted to mention whilst talking about this is the presence of, well, of the toilets. I think toilets are very different, or bathrooms, I should say, when you go visit another country. And I think certainly one of the things that you will notice in France is the, um, the absence of the actual toilet in itself, um, the bowl. But a lot of the time, uh, French people will have the, well, so-called uh, lavabo, so your Turkish um, style toilet where you know obviously got a hole on the floor surrounded by ceramic of course um, and I suppose if you go to a hotel you don't notice when you go on holiday um, because a lot of the time those will be equipped with you know your usual um, 
sort of equipment. But if you visit a family, if you have, you know, an exchange, if you're going to an exchange, I think we need to be prepared for those um, possibilities. And then one of my favourites, obviously, um, items um, that we don't seem to um, have a lot of in the UK is obviously the bidet. So the bidet, which is um, French for pony or short-legged horse, <laughs> um, to sort of, you know, remind you of how to, um, I guess, approach it, um, is, you know, a very common feature in South Europe. This, this has taken a turn. I wasn't expecting it to go this way. But Mr. De Salva, you're really enlightening <laughs> To the habits of our continental friends here at the minute. Well, I just wanted to say about the bidet because a lot of the time, um, you know, students comment about this and they, you know, um, are fairly disgusted by the presence of that in the uh, in the bathrooms. Um, I think it's actually, um, you know, quite a cultural difference, I should say. And there is a reason why they were so popular, by the way, and it is to do with the fact that, um, especially in 17th century France, it was quite expensive to run a bath, like, you know, always have a full bath. Um, so, you know, you had to make do with a you know, smaller amount of water. Um, and a lot of the time, actually, there were used bidets by um, soldiers and people who used to ride horses quite a lot because at the end of the day or long day sort of work or riding the horse, they just wanted to almost find some soothing um, time, so to speak. So yes, and last thing about the bidet, the reason why they are so unpopular um, abroad has to do with the fact we're often associated with, um, unfortunately, not very moral behaviour because mistresses had them and um, I don't know what you would call them, houses um, that uh, would be visited frequently brothels is the word yes oh, brothels is the word indeed um and because they were present there to allow um staff to you know um to get somehow clean um in between customers so to speak um he, the idea was then associated with you know immoral or immoral behavior and that's why a lot of households um did not want to be there in the house um, but they are still a presence in, you know, in France and um, in Spain, uh, well, definitely in Italy, I would say, as well. I want to ask a practical question about the toilets and then being holes in the ground. Now, I know everybody can get ill from time to time and have a topsy-turvy tummy, and you kind of get caught a distance from the toilet and you're, like, rushing to get to the loo. And when you get to a loo in the UK, you've quite clearly got your toilet basin to, to, get, to get to. When it's a little hole in the ground, this is very susceptible to missing yes. the target. Splashage. Splat, splashage, <laughs> for want of a better um, word, yeah. Because it's not just a hole in the, on the floor, but it's surrounded by, you know, rather you know, large amount of ceramic around it, I think. But, but your, you know, feet, your feet will be on the ceramic, yeah? Yes. I mean, a lot of the time you would probably clean the surrounding area, I would hope. Uh, I think that becomes a personal hygiene oh, matter. It sounds so grim. It sounds I've, so grim. I've encountered one of these, I think, once in my life. Running um, for it? Uh, 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 there was no running involved. It was a, it was a truly kind of... I found it quite a, a difficult experience. I'll be honest with you. Like I did, as in, like when you encounter it for the first time, 
you don't yeah. quite know, as you're saying, Mr. Lord, like where what to do. It's it's, uh, it's apparently biologically it's way it's better, better for you because the the stooping process actually uh, allows your bowels to move more freely and um yeah it's really good for the digestive tract apparently and all of that i'm loving this section of the podcast but to the point that actually they have advertised in the last couple of years it's almost like a little um step to have um like near your toilet so that you can put your feet a little bit raised to allow you to almost have that kind of squatting position to you know um to almost imitate that um you know squatting movement um i think it's just in, important to be aware of the fact that even as you travel across the country you know could encounter these differences in you know service stations or you know uh, various types of accommodation um and it's you know just be prepared to um you know encounter some differences and be open because it's not just about the language but it's understanding how other people across the world live and for them that is the norm even if we may find it uncomfortable or unattractive yeah. or almost disgusting no, no you're, you're absolutely right and i fully recommend a great website called uh, dollar street uh, which is available if you just google dollar street it'll come up it's part of gap minders um facilities but you can click on household and like kitchens bathrooms whatever and look at in different countries people with different income amounts it's absolutely fantastic it's so good to see i was going to add in one last uh, word of advice if i was just going to suggest that uh, with all the things that we've just learned there um be careful where you put your feet i think that's just um, as a piece of uh, wisdom going forward Okay, so that brings us to the end of part five of Language Liaison. I think it was really kind of interesting, actually, um, in terms of giving the context of the fact that everybody at the moment is uh, pretty much at home quite a lot of the time. And to think about how other people in different parts of the world are experiencing their lockdowns. I mean, actually, in terms of, you know, in terms of uh, France and Spain, particularly, maybe even Italy as well, with more people living in, in flats, that does create a whole different dynamic in terms of the, um, the lockdown experience, not being able to go outside into, the, into a garden. I know, you know myself, I currently live in a, in, a, in a flat and I'd do anything for a garden uh, right now. Um, so yeah, that brings us to the end of part five and uh, we're back in just a few moments with part six. Okay, welcome back to part six. Uh, a quick one this time. We're just gonna uh, share a couple of your comments and questions that have come out uh, this week. Um, firstly, we've had a request uh, as for a potential feature in the show or something that might be able to do on a, on a regular basis, sharing um, revision or independent study tips um, from you guys, essentially. So this is something we may look to roll out in the near future. So keep an eye on the emails that I send out asking for questions. Um, if there are any uh, things that you found really useful during the lockdown, during the remote learning that you found has helped you remain focused, remain organized, getting things done because you know you're there for, you know on your own for the most part um it is a different kind of challenge keeping yourself up to speed and keeping yourself on task uh, that it would be uh, at school normally um so if there's anything that you guys have found that's worked for you um then we're going to encourage you to maybe share it and obviously we can share any ideas that that we have going forward we also had a little question um last week asking us basically how we do this. Uh, some people have been inspired to start their own podcasts and, and to think about making their own stuff. So we, uh, we essentially record this on, on Zoom 
and um, then we edit it all together using a free app you can get uh, I believe it's on it's certainly on Apple and I believe it's available on Android as well it's called Anchor which essentially allows you to chop it all together and add in uh, noises and sound okay folks I think I think that brings us uh, to the end of another uh, HD lockdown pod um, it just leaves me to say thank you for for joining us today folks thank you for joining us uh, Mr. Patterson. Thank you very much. Mr. Lawson, it's been a pleasure. Ah. And Mr. DeSalvo, arrivederci. Arrivederci. Can I just say as well, um, I'm a bit kind of disappointed there was no comments on my singing last last, last time. In fact, there has been, um, and I think maybe that is the feedback that we're all feared, was the, yeah. the, the, dead, the dead in silence that was the response to your first attempt at a musical number. That might be all the feedback that we need going forward. Right. But without right. further ado, farewell. What are toilets like in Italy? <laughs>